My name is Anna Warberry. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. In November 2021, the UK is hosting the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. In the run-up to this critical event, the Climate Briefing podcast brings you everything you need to know about the COP negotiations and international climate politics. Throughout the year, we'll also be covering other important climate and environmental conferences, like the UN Biodiversity Summit, and we'll be exploring the challenges and opportunities the transition to net zero societies entail. What solutions exist to help address climate change, and what can major emitters do to reduce their emissions? What are the key themes for COP26, and what do the poorest and most climate vulnerable nations want from the negotiations? To find out, we'll be speaking to policymakers, climate negotiators, business leaders, and experts from academia and civil society worldwide. Hello, and welcome back to the Climate Briefing. I'm Ben Horton joining you from London as ever. And down the line, I have with me my colleague, Anna Arbery. How are you doing, Anna? Hey, Ben, I'm fine. It's uh, really lovely that, you know, we're exiting lockdown and the sun is out. I actually haven't been able to make it to the pub yet, though. I mean, all the, the tables have been full and people are going crazy. But it's it's very nice. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it's like uh, people have been held back for so long and now, <laughs> now they're letting it all back out. But anyway, on to the subject of this week's episode. We realise we've not done a climate briefing episode in a little while, um, but we're very excited to be back picking up with this topic, which is thinking through how the international community is developing approaches to dealing with the impacts of climate change. A lot of emphasis is put on reducing global warming, reducing emissions, and that's obviously like vital, massively important, but we're also thinking about how to support vulnerable communities affected by climate change now. And we're going to be covering a few different topics as part of that in this episode. So Anna, I just thought maybe it would be helpful if you could give us a little bit of a a breakdown of of some of the key terms. So to begin with, um, could you tell us a bit about adaptation, what it means and, and why it matters? Yeah, happy to. So when we're talking about climate change policy and climate action, we're usually talking about two things. We're talking about mitigation and we're talking about adaptation. Mitigation is all about reducing greenhouse gases and tackling kind of the root cause of climate change. Adaptation, on the other hand, is decreasing the vulnerability to climate change impacts and lowering climate-related risks. Concretely, uh, you know, adaptation measures include everything from building flood defenses to putting up early warning systems to switching to drought-resistant crops. And it really varies a lot depending on context. I don't think you can say that there is a one-size-fits-all solution. And I think it's really important to note uh, that we both need to mitigate climate change, but we also need to adapt. Mitigation is not enough because, as you know, climate change is already posing uh, you know, severe risks to people and communities all over the world. And if, even if we do manage to reduce emissions substantially in the next decade, further uh, warming is unavoidable. Finally, I think it's worth mentioning uh, that there is a special goal on climate change adaptation in the Paris Agreement. 
and that strengthening climate change adaptation is a big priority for especially climate vulnerable developing countries. And it's also a key theme for COP26. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it is such a crucial topic and, and something that, as you'll hear, is kind of gaining momentum, I guess, in, in the international debate. Something that you also touch on a lot in, in your interview this week is this idea of loss and damage, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's kind of a next step, isn't it? Beyond adaptation, it's kind of an understanding that there are some impacts that actually have already happened, particularly on vulnerable communities and in vulnerable sort of geographic contexts, which in some way need compensating for. Could you maybe explain a bit more about, about loss and damage as a concept? Yeah, you're right. We spoke quite a lot about this in the first interview, and it's an important and interesting concept. When we talk about loss and damage, we're usually talking about climate change impacts, as you say, that go kind of beyond what we can adapt to. So, for instance, there are some measures that people and communities can take to adapt to modest sea level rise. But, you know, what do we do when an entire island is submerged? And these costs or harms, they can both be economic in nature. But when we're talking about loss and damage, we might also be talking about loss of culture or even loss of human life. And there is actually no official definition uh, of loss and damage, and the views differ substantially on how to frame it, and you know, especially about uh, what to do about it. Uh, many developing countries they emphasize the historic vulnerability, um, sorry, the historic responsibility of industrialized countries for causing climate change, and as you were alluding to, they demand compensation for this. Uh, they also want loss and damage to be treated as a separate track within the climate negotiations. Uh, and to, you know, separate it out from adaptation. Developed countries, on the other hand, they really oppose this framing. They do not want to talk about liability or about compensation. And uh, they treat it as a subcomponent generally of adaptation. You know, and I think it's fair to say that loss and damage is uh, definitely one of the, if not the most contentious issues in the UN climate negotiations. Absolutely. And we are joined by a fantastic lineup of guests this week to explore these issues. So, Anna, who did you speak to? So, I had the honor of speaking to Her Excellency Sada Muna Tasneem, who is High Commissioner of Bangladesh to the UK, Ireland, and Liberia. And she is also permanent representative of Bangladesh to the International Maritime Organization. And we had a really interesting uh, discussion. Uh, Bangladesh is one of the most climate vulnerable countries in the world. But clearly, it is also taking really strong action to adapt and to build resilience against climate change impact. And I was actually really uh, impressed after our conversation about what Bangladesh is doing. Uh, it also has an interesting position internationally. It is leading something called the Climate Vulnerable Forum, which is a partnership with the 48 most climate vulnerable nations. So in our conversation, we started talking about you know, how climate change is affecting Bangladesh, what Bangladesh is doing to adapt. And then we spoke a lot about uh, what Bangladesh and the climate vulnerable countries more broadly want from the climate negotiations uh, and what they hope to see happen at COP26. How about you, Ben? Who did you speak to? Awesome. Yes, so I spoke to Marek Sones, um, who's a researcher on climate change at the International Institute for Environment and Development. And we spoke about how adaptation can be sort of implemented in practice. Obviously, it's increasingly a um, conversation within development circles, not just in climate circles, but thinking about how 
on the ground, communities can be helped to adapt to the to the effects of climate change. And something that his organization has been working on a lot alongside many others in recent months is this concept of local led adaptation, really sort of empowering local communities and ensuring that the significant sums of money that governments and aid agencies are putting into this effort is actually sort of spent in the most efficient and context specific ways. So Marek sort of explained eight key principles, which will enable us to sort of really make the most of local-led adaptation. It's such an important topic, as you say. I mean, we really, it's not just about the numbers. It's also very important, of course, that the programs actually work and that they reduce vulnerability for the people on the ground. Great. Well, looking forward to it. Let's have a listen. So I'm really honored to be joined by Her Excellency Saida Muna Tasnim, who is the High Commissioner of Bangladesh to the UK, Ireland and Liberia, and the Permanent Representative of Bangladesh to the IMO. Your Excellency, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Anna. It's really, really fortunate to be joining this session, and which is a platform to let everyone know what are the concerns, what are the expectations of my country from COP26 and in generally on climate change and related crisis. The honor is truly ours. The focus of our discussion today is on climate change adaptation and loss and damage. And I wanted to start the interview by asking you to tell us a little bit about how climate change is affecting your country, Bangladesh. Thank you, Anna. As uh, I think everyone knows around here, we are, Bangladesh is one of, you know, globally, seventh most climate vulnerable country in the world, according to German Climate Watch. Generally, one out of 45 persons globally, by the turn of the century, is supposed to, in the low-lying and coastal countries, as well as island countries, are supposed to go underwater and become climatically displaced. For Bangladesh, however, it is not one out of 45, it's one out of seven persons are expected to be climatically displaced by before the turn of the century, anytime beyond 2050. As you know that our country's uh, geological, our geomorphological location is at the bottom of the three major and great river systems, Ganges, the Brahmaputra, and the Meghna. And they all go to the Bay of Bengal, and we are also the largest delta in the world. So historically, Bangladesh has always been this low-lying country that has been prone to natural disasters such as climate, cyclones, and flooding. However, what we notice is over the past 20 years, Bangladesh's frequency and veracity of natural disasters have really, really become very intense. And 19 of the coastal districts are low-lying in Bangladesh, which actually host 42 million population. As you know, we are a very densely populated country. And even like a point one meter of sea level rise will put them to threat and at the risk of being displaced. So um, by 2050 and by the turn of the century, there could be that kind of sea level rise unless we can keep the temperature under 1.5 degrees. We can expect more flooding, inundation of the coastal areas. And in Bangladesh, 17% of our coastal areas are supposed to go underwater, which is expected to displace 20 million people in our coastal areas. So we are that vulnerable to climate change. And also according to the Environmental Justice Foundation, like I mentioned, with this slightest sea level rise, what happens to these people? We already have over the past decade, I mean, so far in the last 15 years, I think Bangladesh has got 6 million climate displaced people already that had migrated to 
the cities or you know from the coastal areas and they're homeless i mean they, they lost their homes to natural disasters and they've moved to the city the other problems that we face is you know every year we are losing two percent of our gdp and by 2050 beyond our gdp loss could be up to nine percent by 2100 now this is a struggle between preserving your gdp and losing it to climate change and when it comes to agriculture the risks are very high because we are a very densely populated country, 165 million or 170 million on 144 square kilometers. Therefore, agricultural land and agriculture is precious to us for our food security. And climate change will have a severe impact on our food security because by 2050, 8% of our agricultural production, rice production is supposed to be reduced because of climate change and 32% of our wheat production by 2050. Also, just last year, during uh, the COVID crisis, Cyclone Ampan, a Category 5 cyclone, hit Bangladesh, and it was immediately followed by torrential floods. Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, with her very rapid evacuation program, had evacuated 2.4 million people and half a million livestock to safety in five days. But that didn't take away our losses. So we had incurred nearly 3.5 to 4 billion US dollars of loss with the combined uh, Category 5 cyclone Ampan, the damages that it was caused, and also the flooding that followed. So therefore, we are actually absolutely at the ground zero. You could consider that Bangladesh is at the ground zero of climate change crisis. And uh, we consider, as Honorable Prime Minister Shikhasina, our Prime Minister has, who's a leader in her own right in climate voice, she's being the climate voice of the world for the vulnerable countries and also for those countries that seek compensation in many ways for a crime that they haven't committed. That is, our global footprint is only 0.4 metric ton, whereas there are many countries whose are 44 metric ton. I don't want to name any country, but you know, even with a G20. So the question is, you know, why are we taking the loss for somebody else's crime? Clearly, climate change is already having a very large impact on Bangladesh. And it's very concerning indeed. I know, though, that you're also doing a lot to adapt to climate change impacts and to strengthen resilience. And I was wondering if you could tell us about some of the work that you're doing in this space. So to that question, I would answer that we are a country that this year, this is the 50th anniversary of our independence. And on the 50th year, uh, Golden Jubilee, our prime minister had declared in 2009 that by 2021, Bangladesh will graduate out of the LDC group. So all these days we've been in LDC, we're still in the process, but the UN Development Committee has just declared us that we are fully capable and fully eligible to graduate out of the LDC group. But even as an LDC, we never waited for the UNFCC Climate Trust Fund or the LDC Trust Fund funding. The principle of Honorable Prime Minister is that we must help ourselves because we can't wait to suffer someone else to rescue us when we are going underwater. So there she had created this Climate Change Trust Fund, and this is from our own resources. And that is why Bangladesh has learned to do its own climate financing and not wait for anyone. But we know that we have a right to ask for it. But this particular fund has so far spent over the past decade, 450 million US dollars until August 2020, and 800 adaptation and resilience projects have been implemented, are being implemented from the Climate Change Trust Fund, which are all locally led. So locally-led climate adaptation and resilience is at the heart of our climate change strategy on how to prevent climate change when it comes to mitigation, when it comes to adaptation, and also building resilience. Every year, currently, our government is spending uh, $2 billion U.S. dollars, $2 billion for adaptation, and $3 billion for 
resilience, which is $5 billion US dollars from our own funds. This is more than 2% of our GDP. And uh, since 2010, this is going on. And we have doubled our budget allocations from 1.5 billion to nearly 3 billion during the same period. So, you know, what we are doing is we have a climate sensitive budgetary allocation. It is called the climate fiscal framework. And under this fiscal framework, there are about 25 ministries and divisions of the government that has somewhere or the other linked to, uh, you know, climate change and environment. And they are allocated total our budget, 58% of our budget, nearly 60% of the budget is allocated to these 25 ministries, of which nearly 8% each ministry is spending after climate change. How to prevent, how to do adaptation, resilience, and whatever mitigation we can. So this is extremely important that people think that Bangladesh is an LDC, which we are, we have been in LDC, but that didn't prevent us from taking our own action, own leadership, of climate financing and adaptation and resilience. I would give you two more examples of what we're doing as adaptation resilience. As you know, our coastal areas I've already mentioned that nearly 18% will go underwater. So to prevent that, most of the investment have been made in the two tracks. One is the coastal, the other one is the Bahrain track, which is suffering from drought in North Bengal. And the other one is the Howl land, you know, the marshy lands in Silat and Northeastern Bangladesh. So in the coastal areas, nearly 200,000 hectares of coastal plantation has been done to prevent tidal surge. And this we call the green coastal belt. If you recall the tsunami in, in 2004, that had hit every country. But you know, our coastal area was much more resilient and that's why we didn't get hit by the tsunami to that extent. And then, you know, the government has also uh, built 16, nearly like 17 kilometers of sea dikes in the coastal areas and nearly 12,000 cyclone shelters. As you know that I, I just mentioned that we had evacuated the people, but you know, we had only evacuated 2.4 million people in five days where to these cyclone shelters. So this is a great strength that we have a resilient system that we have developed for early warning and preparedness for disaster. And then when it comes to agriculture, we have our scientist has developed climatically resilient crop seeds, which, you know, we know that inundation and salinization is a major problem in the coastal areas, and there's no drinking water, it's all saline water. So we have developed this salinity tolerant seeds. Uh, we have this ex floating vegetable beds where this is absolutely indigenous technology, where on water higher sink, you have floating vegetable beds and you can grow anything there. You can grow rice, vegetable, you can grow anything there that, that can be grown on a small bed. These are floating beds that are in the northeastern part and also in the coastal areas of Borishal. And then for safe drinking water, which in the, in the coastal area, we have installed thousands of deep tube wells and also one nature-based solution, which is called pond sand filters. So in the pond, they have, we've established sand filters so that preserve the rainwater, you know, rain reservoir is also called, and mobile water treatment plants. So we have to be very innovative to protect particularly the coastal belt people from all these uh, climate change adversaries and also adapt and survive. So it's a survival skill that we have developed. The other one I would like to mention is the Delta Plan 2100 and all that I mentioned, building dikes, these are all part of the Delta Plan. So we are the largest Delta in the world. So is Netherlands, another Delta. So with Netherlands and the Global Climate Adaptation Center, we have developed, our Honorable Prime Minister has developed the Delta Plan 2100. That looks after our entire water system, the three major rivers that come to the Bangladesh Delta from the Himalayas. 
the water management system and also building sluice gates on the river, excavating the canals, building rubber dams, and erecting water control infrastructures. The Bangladesh scientists are looking into it and the water experts. And you know, together with these technologies, we feel that we're doing our best that we can to adapt to climate change, adapt to the sea level rise, and also build strong resilience. Last program that I want to mention, there's a new concept that our prime minister has coined. This year is the birth centenary of our founding father, Bangabundu Sheikh Mujibur Rahman. And on his birth centenary, she has declared this Mujib Climate Prosperity Plan. Now, this is a new concept. It's a paradigm shift from vulnerability to adaptation, to resilience building, to prosperity. That means we will not allow our growth and our prosperity to be lost to climate change. We will not get defeated. So that's the spirit. And under that plan, already 11.5 million saplings has been planted in the coastal areas in particular, but also other parts of Bangladesh as a climate resilience action. And at the same time, the prosperity plan looks into investing and also creating livelihoods towards a low carbon development pathway and a green growth and a more resilient infrastructure that would be supported by renewable energies. Thank you so much. It's really inspiring and impressive what Bangladesh is doing in this sphere. I wanted to pick up quickly on these climate prosperity plans. Is this something you're also promoting within your presidency of the Climate Vulnerable Forum this year? Absolutely. So as you know that after Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina had assumed the presidency of CVF last year, it was middle of the year, in September at the sidelines of the UN General Assembly, she convened the Climate Vulnerable Leaders Summit. And in that summit, she had declared two things. One is that a deadline for the G20 countries and all the developed countries, in fact, all the countries in the world, to renew and come up with enhanced nationally determined contribution. As you know, in Paris, we'd agreed that by 2020, we must declare new enhanced and ambitious NDCs so that with uh, new declarations, the 1.5 degrees, you know, the Bible of 1.5 degrees can be honored. And towards that end, she declared a midnight survival deadline of 31st December 2020. And she said in her speech, that for us, it's a question of survival. The Climate Vulnerable Forum countries, 48 of the most vulnerable countries climatically in the world, while we are, I am leading them and speaking in their voice, she said that the time to take action on climate action is not tomorrow, it's today. So today, by 2020, 31st December, you have to declare, we want to see what are you doing on mitigation and national determined contributions. Particularly, she called upon the G20 countries who are the greatest emitters. In fact, they emit 80 or more than 80% of the total global emissions, whereas the other 20% is actually 3.5%, particularly the Climate Vulnerable Forum. Our carbon footprint is very, very low. So she has asked for this particular midnight climate survival deadline because their indices is a matter of our survival. And the other one was, as she declared, is the Mujib Climate Prosperity Plan. And she has encouraged every CBF country to come up with the climate prosperity concept. So while she has declared a Mujib climate prosperity decade, a decade that absolutely coincides with the sustainable development goals, so a decade from 2100 to 2030, she had encouraged all the CBF countries to come up with their prosperity plan. The concept is to trap the growth. You know, we will not allow the growth to be lost to climate change. But of course, it needs a lot of financing. As you know that, you know, how can you do it without climate financing and transfer of technology? Like I said, part of the Mujib Climate Prosperity Plan is that offshore in the Delta, 
taking advantage of the wind drop, we will put wind power plants and also solar power plants on the sea. But it requires a lot of financing and transfer technology that we don't have. So we don't have this technology. And that is where the climate prosperity, while you help yourself, we also go for justice. You know, there comes a question of climate justice. The prosperity plan is something of a political declaration and an intent by most climatically vulnerable countries, which have taken an undertaking that by 2050, all CBF countries want to go for 100% renewable energy. I don't know if you knew that. So that's also part of the prosperity. So Prime Minister's vision is that since we have all declared that by 2050, I don't know if Bangladesh can make it because such a largest population of the CBF countries, but you know, the small island developing countries like Barbados, like Costa Rica, they have declared by 2050, they will go 100% renewable. And that's a great, great spirit, you know? You're supposed to go underwater, but you're declaring, look, the developed countries, whether you do it or not, we have declared by 2050, we're going to be 100% renewable. So when there is so much commitment, so much solidarity to prevent climate change or to allow further global temperature rise by CVF countries, why not the G20 countries support them? That's the spirit. It's a very good question. So this podcast has quite a strong focus on the UN climate negotiations, and both adaptation and loss and damage have been addressed within the UNFCCC negotiations for quite some time. And I wanted to ask you what Bangladesh and the, perhaps the most climate vulnerable countries more generally think about the way that climate adaptation and also loss and damage have been handled within the negotiations to date. Has enough been done? What have the most important milestones been? I think that when it comes to adaptation, as I told you, without climate financing and adaptation financing, how can you actually achieve adaptation? And also, as our prime minister always says, there's also a limit to adaptation. You know, you talk about net zero. What about adaptation zero? I mean, you know, you go to a level where you can't adapt anymore. No matter how much you adapt, the climate temperature rises, and that cannot be the philosophy. The philosophy is just like there's a cap on 1.5 degrees. There also has to be a cap on how much the developing countries and the climate vulnerable countries should adapt. And if you really want them to adapt, you have to provide them climate financing. You know, there's a very nice mechanisms that we have discussed under the Paris Agreement. So look at the Article 6, and you mentioned about loss and damage. Now, this loss and damage concept and the debate under the UNFCC, it has been the most contested issue between the countries which have emitted and the countries who have suffered because of them, their emissions. So that is the crux of the problem. It's a question of fairness, justice, and equity and taking historic responsibility for the damage you've caused due to global emissions and GHG emissions, the damage that has been caused due to the climate change, and definitely some parties are responsible for it. So I've already mentioned that the G20 countries account for 80% of the global emissions. And when we talk about loss and damage, it's about the climatically displaced persons, the recurring natural disasters, and the damage that caused. I just told you, we lost 3.5 billion US dollars last year due to the cyclone Ampan and the torrential floods that followed afterwards. Thousands of people were displaced due to cyclone Ampan in Bangladesh and also in India. Our government had to rebuild their homes. They had to be given food aid. They had to be rehabilitated. Now they had to have new livelihood. And most importantly, they lost their homes. How do you compensate these people? So they become climatically displaced. So this is at the heart of the loss and damage debate, that how do we get compensated for the climate that we didn't change? 
uh, somebody else changed it for us. And when our carbon footprints are so negligible, so treating loss and damage uh, within the you know, UNFCC negotiations is extremely important. And what we saw is, you know, in the Warsaw Me International Mechanism for Loss and Damage that was established in 2014 at the COP19 that promotes the implementation of how to address uh, some sort of mechanisms for how to address loss and damage uh, associated with climate change impacts, particularly, you know, one solution that should be comprehensive, integrated, and coherent uh, with the UNFCC's other components of all the other articles. But all the other articles have been discussed, but Article 6, and when it came to loss and damage, is still unresolved in a way. Because we know that in Paris Agreement, it reaffirmed the Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage as the main vehicle. However, you know, we really, it, the financing part didn't get fulfillment. We believe that any climate-induced displacement is a form of loss and damage from Bangladesh. And also for the, all the CVF countries, we'll be saying the same thing in COP26. It is well-recognized under the UNFCC that loss and damage does incur a huge cost and the affected population and the vulnerable communities that are the victims of the loss and damage must be compensated in one way or another. Now, I would like to particularly mention that, you know, the Santiago network that hasn't been operationalized is a great opportunity at COP26 under Article uh, UNFCC Article 6 to activate the Santiago network. But also, I particularly believe that Santiago network if it has to be operationalized in COP26, we need the commitment of the United Kingdom in particular. But I must also say that we have seen Mr. Alok Sharma, where he had put UK's priorities. He did mention about adaptation financing to be, that is going to be a big priority at the COP26. And when we mentioned to him in one such dialogue that loss and damage is going to be a major point that Bangladesh as CVF leader and also as a most vulnerable country to climate change will drive home in Glasgow, he was quite welcoming to it. He said, we will look into the loss and damage. And it does say officially that uh, UK as COP26 presidency will consider the loss and damage issue to be an important issue. So we are absolutely looking forward to that. The other thing I'd like to mention on the loss and damage in Article 6 is the carbon trading. As you know, that's one way of compensating the developing countries, particularly the climate vulnerable countries. Why not do the carbon trading? I told you. I mean, there are countries whose carbon footprint within the G20 is 44 metric tonne. Certain countries, 16 metric ton, 20 metric ton. Bangladesh, 0.4 metric ton. Why can't we have a carbon trading where they fund, you know, we exchange what we don't pollute with them. And then in exchange, they provide us funding for climate resilience and adaptation project. Why not fund the coastal or delta renewable energy projects that Bangladesh wants to do under the Moody Climate Prosperity Plan? And every country under CVF that they want to fund, they want to implement any of their climate prosperity you know, projects offshore for renewables, for uh, more mitigation, for industrial, you know, low carbon, industrial growth, industrial development pathway. Why not support us do the carbon trading system under the Article 6? So, yes, in COP26 and at Glasgow, as CVF leader and as a country most vulnerable to climate change, Bangladeshis will be one of the strongest voice when it comes to loss and damage. It might be even the heart of our participation and Honorable Prime Minister Shikhasina may be demanding these things from the developed countries, not only United Kingdom, but of course, she has great confidence of the UK presidency of the COP26. She absolutely is delighted to see that these are important uh, priorities of the UK presidency of the COP26. And, you know, UK, that country, uh, you know, declared their NDCs on time and also declared a net zero by 2050 is a great, great role model for any developed country. And as CVF Presidency Bangladesh, Prime Minister looks forward to working with Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Alok Sharma 
to deliver on those loss and damage promises and, and expectations. So we've already touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to talk more about COP26 specifically, because all eyes are, of course, on Glasgow. What would an ideal outcome on adaptation and loss and damage look like at COP26 from the perspective of Bangladesh and the climate vulnerable countries more broadly? I mean, what is the ideal scenario and what can realistically be achieved? I think that we should not consider that what is the ideal and what can be achieved. The more targets we can get, you know, the more targets we can set, we become more target oriented. Because we discuss the Santiago network or we discuss the Warsaw International Mechanism at some COP, today we are in a position to talk about it, you know? So whatever we can achieve, we look forward to that. I mean, everything is for the takes. So I would say that, you know, it's a win-win situation, whatever we can get out of COP26. For Bangladesh as a climatically hit country, like I said, it's like that the ground zero of climate change. Our Honorable Prime Minister, as the leader of Bangladesh delegation and also as the CVF president, would obviously be first and foremost looking into her midnight survival deadline. That means those countries that have particularly those developed countries and the largest emitters who have not come up with enhanced NDC targets, uh, she will call upon them and she would like to see before COP26, they submit their NDCs. And definitely at COP26, they must not cross this deadline because it is a survival deadline. for. I mean, for them, it may be a luxury, but for Bangladesh and the climate vulnerable 48, it is a matter of survival. We either go underwater or we survive. So it's extremely important for us that that particular NDC and the 1.5 degrees is respected. And number two is, apart from the NDCs, of course, we are looking into adaptation and adaptation funding. Why hasn't been the 100 billion promised uh, been delivered? So that is going to be our second priority, that climate financing, both from adaptation and for mitigation, but this 100 billion per year must be disbursed into 50-50. We cannot put more emphasis. We are always told by the developed countries, what are you doing about mitigation? We need to mitigate, but we're emitting so less. Why don't you mitigate first? So the thing is that, yes, we need funding for mitigation for our industry, for our transports, for our renewable energy. But at the same time, we also need 50% of that fund for adaptation and building resilience. Because how can we capture our prosperity, we're going to lose our prosperity. As you know that Bangladesh was growing at 8.19% in 2019 before COVID. And in post-COVID also, we are trying our best under Honorable Prime Minister's leadership. As you know that Prime Minister Shekhisina has given an example as a very successful leader in handling the COVID crisis and also talking about and championing the green recovery. So in that aspect, our growth rate has been 5.2% last year. And this year also, the World Bank has predicted 5% or more this year as well. We are expecting a 6% growth. So if we want to capture our growth, we must have the climate financing. So 100 billion US dollars, 50-50 disbursed for mitigation, adaptation, and resilience is extremely important, a second priority. And also, of course, we will take up on loss and damage and carbon trading and everything that is under Article 6. So Article 6 is going to be the highlight of our demand-based approach and championing the loss and damage compensations through carbon trading and also to financing of uh, different projects, uh, you know, green financing of, of uh, projects in developing countries by the developed countries under the Santiago network. Activating the Santiago network is going to be a priority. And the fourth priority is, as you know, the Climate Vulnerable Forum has a V20 Finance Ministers Forum. Now, the V20 Climate Vulnerable Finance Ministers Forum is creating a climate V20 
CVF Climate Trust Fund. And we are expecting that the G20 countries should team up with the V20 group of finance ministers. And our term is between 2020 and 2022. So Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina would also, as Bangladesh, as a CVF member and also as president of CVF, will be demanding that G20 finance ministers sit down with V20, a group of climate vulnerable finance ministers, to find out from them what are the kind of financing they need. Because if this interaction doesn't take place, then how will we find out what exactly they can help us with? It's not that any of the CBF countries are sitting around and waiting around. We're helping ourselves. But there is a loss and damage and climate justice aspect to the climate story. And they must listen to us what we have to say and what are our demands in terms of climate financing. And the other one, I would say that you know, I did mention about carbon markets, operationalizing an effective carbon market, particularly delivering 5% of the proceeds for adaptation from carbon trading for vulnerable developing countries and vulnerable communities to the CDM projects is extremely important. You know, if we want to have our low carbon climate projects financed from the club carbon market trading, that's very important under Paris Agreement. And also I mentioned about climate financing in general, $100. I think the last one will be that we expect the developed countries at COP26 that you should come forward with concessional financing, debt relief, and access to technology for developing countries, LDCs, and CVF members. Because there are so much debt that has accumulated because of COVID. So COVID has completely disrupted what we are expecting, the growth and the climate financing. So what has happened due to COVID is every country and every nation developed countries are looking after their own economy. They're busy doing that. They probably have forgot about climate financing and debt relief, but we have to remind them about the concessional financing, debt relief, and then, of course, they have to give access to technology. We know that the, in the United Kingdom, by 2030, all diesel cars are going to be out. There's going to be electric cars only and electric charging station. We must also get a share of that particular you know, investment, that particular commercial thinking, that particular renewable technology. And we must have access to technology. So we will demand it that, you know, why don't you invest, do climate financing in Bangladesh, and also provide us an opportunity to have electric cars and other technologies. Lastly, I would say that Bangladesh has particularly put forward a demand to the UN Human Rights Council to have to appoint a dedicated UN Special Rapporteur on climate change in human rights. We believe that when it comes to climate justice and loss and damage, there's a human rights aspect to climate change, and there's an issue of fairness and justice. And if there's a UN Special Rapporteur appointed for climate change in human rights, his or her responsibility will be going to all these countries, you know, vulnerable countries, and finding out exactly what extent of loss and damage, extent of disenfranchisement has happened to people who've lost their homes due to no fault of theirs. So that is going to be a priority. And I think the Mujib Climate Prosperity Plan, coining the climate prosperity concept to the COP26 is going to be our uh, Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina's priority as well. We hope that, you know, we do come to a same platform to talk about these things. I mean, we see eye to eye, the Climate Vulnerable Forum and the COP26 presidency, the two presidencies must see eye to eye on these issues. Thank you so much. I wanted to pick up briefly, you spoke about the V20 meeting with the G20 and having joint meetings. I mean, have those discussions started? Are there concrete plans to actually hold such a meeting, for instance, in the run-up to the Glasgow COP? Within Bangladesh presidency, the first V20 finance minister's meeting was supposed to actually happen today, 9th April, but it got postponed because I think due to COVID, just to getting the finance ministers together is so difficult because every finance minister is now the champion of 
their own nations because they are looking after how to keeping the economy afloat within the COVID crisis. You know, there's a second wave going on around the world and even in Bangladesh. So getting the finance ministers to talk about climate right now, we couldn't get everybody, but we did invite UK's uh, Foreign Secretary, Mr. Dominic Raab. We have issued an invitation to them uh, from Bangladesh Climate uh, CDF Presidency because, you know, UK this year is the president of G7. And I know that it also has an outreach program. It's also in, uh, inviting some other countries the G7 summit in June. Therefore, as G7 leader this year, we hope that UK in particular will take interest in vulnerable 20 finance ministers meetings. So we're counting upon UK's participation and also uh, perhaps some other countries within the G20 that we might invite in the V20. So yes, we are under Bangladesh presidency looking towards uh, an interaction between the V20 finance ministers, the COP26 and G7 president, the United Kingdom, and perhaps few other key G20 countries that the finance ministers of whom would be invited. And of course, we'll be inviting World Bank and other uh, sort of multilateral financing institutions as to look at the key issue, the heart of the debate of climate change is financing. So when we know every country is being innovative, you know, just like Bangladesh, and not waiting for anybody, they're actually waiting for funds. So I think G20 and V20 meetings can be a very fruitful platform where meaningful uh, exchanges can be exchanged between the finance ministers to maintain the GDP growth rate of the world, particularly the vulnerable 20. This has to absolutely happen. The V20 and the G20 finance ministers must meet. So we hope that during our presidency it happens. Commissioner Tasneem, it has been really fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for your leadership and also for Bangladesh's leadership, of course, in the climate change area. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anna. Take care. Okay, so now I'm joined by Marek Soames, who is a researcher on climate change at the International Institute for Environment and Development. And he's the co-author, alongside many other authors, of a report from January this year titled Principles for Locally-Led Adaptation, A Call to Action. Marek, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you, Ben. So I thought maybe we could begin with getting your sense on kind of the state of play at the moment in terms of international action on climate adaptation. Obviously, in the Paris Agreement and in agreements since, there have been commitments to adaptation at the international level. Before we get into the practicalities of it, what do you think is the kind of global momentum behind the adaptation agenda at the moment? Well, Ben, the fact that you're asking me that question, I think, shows that clearly the politics of adaptation is changing and improving. Um, and the report that you introduced that we I was a co-author on um, was actually part in contributing to uh, the Global Commission on Adaptation, which uh, ended in January, but successfully uh, was, whole, was part of trying to increase the political momentum around adaptation and investing in our climate resilience. Um, but I guess, importantly, it's still lagging far behind mitigation and we really need to see a step change in our momentum on adaptation and COP26 this year and the COVID green recovery and just recovery that um, have been talking about offers a real opportunity to radically shift around about how we're doing development and how we're adapting. Yeah, that's really interesting. What, what do you think's behind this imbalance between mitigation and adaptation? Why do you think it's been so hard to, to actually get sort of tangible action going on this? 
Uh, well, there are a host of reasons. Obviously, climate mitigation is incredibly important. It's probably the most important thing we can do to adapt to limit how bad the climate impacts are. But it's also much easier to measure. Uh, mitigation is very simple. It's the amount of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases that we avoid or reduce, whereas adaptation or climate resilience is still a very contested topic and very hard to measure if you're doing it well and effectively. And I guess that's what we're going to talk through today is um, even our concepts and supporting more local adaptation is, is part of the whole debate about how to deliver it effectively. Mm. Um, it's also really hard to stimulate investment in adaptation because it doesn't, unlike mitigation, uh, have helpful ways to stimulate private investment. So a host of challenges there. Yeah, interesting. So I'd like to get a bit more into the kind of nitty gritty then, the more practical stuff. So as you see it, what what do you think are the challenges or shortcomings of, of the way that adaptation is being done currently? So at IID, we focus very much on the interaction between climate change and sustainable development. And we support in particular the least developed countries and their efforts as some of the most vulnerable countries and most vulnerable communities to prepare and adapt for climate change. Uh, the worst, uh, even increasing climate change risks that are coming. And we take particular interest in international sources of funding, money, what we call adaptation finance that uh, is pledged as part of the Paris Agreement and under the UNFCCC uh, to support developing countries to adapt to climate change, often the climate impacts that they have had little cause in creating. Uh, so from sources such as governments like the UK government uh, through to the multilateral development banks like the World Bank or special climate funds like the Green Climate Fund and thinking about how they, what role are they playing in helping address some of these issues with climate change, help countries prepare, but also to tackle some of the distributive and procedural injustices that climate change is creating. So we've uh, looked very closely at the role climate finance is playing in helping these countries to adapt to climate change. And this climate finance is also going to be incredibly important in the upcoming negotiations at COP26 in Glasgow to really get uh, ambitious um, movement on not just adaptation but also mitigation because it's essential that the money is doing the right things and at the right scale. And there are a myriad of problems with this money and it's only a part of the resources to help cope with climate change which I'll go into in a moment but there are various issues covering both the scale of the finance that's available but also the quality of the funding and what it's actually helping do. So maybe just to touch on the scale, this is in the context of possibly declining overseas development assistance when we need even maybe around a 750% increase in funding to even just achieve the SDGs. And as climate change continues to get worse, as every day now we're emitting more emissions, that's going to be continued to be undermined. And so uh, the United Nations Environment Programme estimates, estimates we need around 300 billion per year to invest in developing countries adaptation by 2030, but in 2018, that was only standing at 16.5 billion. So we're lagging hugely behind. And then when you look at the 46 least developed countries, they think they need about 40 billion per year over the next decade, and probably maybe higher than this, um, but they only, are only getting between 5.4 and 1.2 billion per year. So this is hugely out of the scale 
that's really required. And then when you look at within countries, uh, estimates such as uh, that IID undertook in 2017 suggests that from the climate funds, less than 10% is targeting the local level. So you've got huge justice issues, both between countries and within countries, and there's all sectoral challenges and flows within that. And then you have the way it's delivered. So the vast majority is actually delivered through international organizations like uh, UN agencies, multilateral development banks, or international NGOs. So for instance, the Green Climate Fund, the world's largest climate fund, 78% of the projects or 81% of the funding is actually delivered through international organizations, despite the, pa the Paris Agreement and the UNFCCC places uh, climate finance being country owned at the center of those agreements. And that really affects the quality of this finance. This, what we call intermediation, so it's flowing through many different types of organizations before it really reaches the communities and the people who need it most, um, has a huge impact in meaning that the decisions that take place on adaptation often happen very far away from where the impacts are actually happening. It means that um, often it results in inflexible approaches that can even deepen vulnerabilities. So some evidence generated by Ericsson et al. earlier this in January, I think, uh, suggested that the prevalence of top-down approaches delivered by international organizations can sometimes enforce decisions that actually increase vulnerabilities rather than reduce them. For instance, uh, preference for hard infrastructure solutions um, rather that embake uh, inflexibility rather than and actually encourage people to remain in high risk areas or even uh, not tackling the structural inequalities that really sit behind many poor and vulnerable people's um, vulnerability to climate change. And this is particularly issues, for instance, with gender, where a very small amount of this international climate finance actually places tackling gendered vulnerabilities uh, at the very heart of how they deliver this climate finance. For instance, just reporting how many beneficiaries are women versus men, rather than actually deeply thinking about the design of the interventions and how they tackle historical gender-based discrimination, and again, potentially exacerbating gender vulnerabilities rather than really tackling them. So they're just a few of the issues and how these can interact to create more challenges down the adaptation cycle. I mentioned at the top of this, the, the report that you've published um, with IED is um, promoting a kind of locally led approach to uh, to this question how do you see local led approaches solving the problems that you've outlined above because i mean they sound so huge and sort of intransigent yeah it's a great question and i guess i should start and say what we're promoting is not everything to be local we know that responding to adaptation i guess you can we think about it as a whole of society response we need adaptation actions from national actors, international actors, regions, cities like London, down to local councils and local communities. We also have public responses, private civil society responses, even individual and household responses. So we need these, ideally, we all be collaborating effectively together, working out the trade-offs, working out the synergies, but, uh, and hopefully we'll get there in the future. Um, but in the reality, we need to think about uh, how do we create lots of opportunities for adaptation across our societies and then recognize where is funding not getting to and where is adaptation being less supported uh, so we can channel more resources to get more adaptation happening effectively. So recognizing that we're likely to face a lot more warming than we're experiencing now and 2020 was a horrible year so let's what imagine what that's like 
when we're hitting three degrees or four degrees of warming, we really need to be thinking about transformative and disruptive adaptation. And that in itself also requires reshaping power dynamics. And that includes giving people who are experiencing the worst impacts, those are the front lines, those are most excluded with more power in how their adaptation takes place. And adaptation is fundamentally a governance process. So who decides on, on what adaptation is, what adaptation we should do, whether it is success or not. And I think we're seeing this with COVID-19 and how that's impacting particular excluded groups more than others. So uh, what, what is more, I guess, what is local adaptation is a crucial part of that. And what we consider that to be is that local communities that have connections can create collective and mutual action are able to uh, have more power in the process and the local organizations that represent them or are accountable to them can be better supported to do that. And ultimately they just have more power, more decision-making over what adaptation is best for them and, and what takes place and are able to see if it worked for them or not. And importantly, particularly those that have historically been excluded, such as women, youth, children, disabled, displaced, indigenous peoples, uh, excluded ethnic groups who tend to be pushed to the margins of adaptation decision-making. So I guess two important points, not all, not all local, but also particularly excluded groups uh, need to be brought in into this process. Thanks. The principles that you outline in your report maybe go a bit more into depth in the way that these approaches are actually delivered and, and what that involves. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about the principles specifically? Sure. So the principles recognise that um, not only do we need to support more local-led adaptation and particularly by the most excluded groups and people, but also that they're already adapting and they need to be recognised as crucial knowledge holders um, in the adaptation process whether that be local, traditional, or indigenous knowledge. And these principles were, were born off the back of one of the uh, action tracks of the Global Commission on Adaptation, which fantastically recognized the role of local actors um, and put forward um, these eight principles that were collaboratively developed by not just IID, but the World Resources Institute and uh, around 50 organizations, in fact, that collaboratively have developed these eight principles as recognizing what are good characteristics of local adaptation, but beyond that, adaptation as a whole, and what, what principles really recognize a step change in how we're doing it from the current status quo. Um, and they help provide a guide on how we can overcome some of the challenges in the current delivery of adaptation finance that I outlined, but this is not only subject to just international financing, but I guess importantly before I outline them, they are not a recipe book. To deliver them will be really hard, shifting incentives, norms, behaviours, and we'll need to be really patient, politically astute. And I guess that's one of the main areas as we're promoting is let's all be patient and learn together. And we're not going to just deliver great resilience and adaptation tomorrow. It's going to take quite a few years to get this process right. So maybe just to run through them, there are eight principles in total. And the first one is around devolving more adaptation decision-making to the lowest level. So really emphasising that we need to be handing over more power to those most impacted by climate change, increasing the amount of finance that they actually receive or are able to interact and have power over and have more decision-making in the adaptation process. Um, the second one is around addressing structural inequalities faced by women, youth, children, disabled, displaced peoples, indigenous peoples and marginalized ethnic groups 
And as I outlined, uh, too often climate adaptation doesn't really effectively engage with the structural issues that really uh, derive a lot of uh, vulnerable people's vulnerability um, and affect their ability to mean meaningfully participate and lead adaptation decision making. Um, so often it tends to more engage with approximate, easily identifiable causes of risk rather than really focusing on addressing underlying inequalities and in, in the intersectionality of risk. So we want to move towards much more effectively, uh, for instance, addressing the issues why women may not be able to engage in adaptation decision making as much as men or other excluded groups. And this may even include investing in issues that, for instance, affect excluded groups' rights to land, natural resources, or unpick other structural issues excluding them from adaptation. The third is particularly around the types and the quality of finance that's provided. So currently we're in a situation where funding is often very short term, often only up to around five years. And if you think about the changes that we need to happen to really adapt to the high degrees of warming, that's disruptive and transformative. And that's not going to happen over five years. It's going to happen over decades. So we need much more patient and predictable funding that provides the confidence to local actors, but also to national institutions that they can change the way they do things. They, they can take risks and do things differently. And the fourth one linked to that is really investing in local capabilities to leave what we call an institutional legacy. So once the funding ends, that there's actually local institutions that exist, are sustainable, are self-sufficient, or maybe can able to access other sources of funding and have the capabilities to really maintain that adaptation and to learn the lessons from what happened and integrate them into practice. And this is really important because we fundamentally don't know how the climate is going to change. We actually can't predict it exactly. And what we need to think about is how do we ensure that the institutions exist that can gather that information about the climate as it is generated, as we learn about it, and then change how we adapt in accordance with that. Without those local institutions, that's just not going to be possible. And on that vein, um, the fifth is around building a robust understanding of climate risk and uncertainty. And actually, uh, through some of the work we've been doing, it's actually coming out that we tend into adaptation to emphasize addressing current climate risks and responding to current risks we face, rather than actually preparing for the uh, much more risky future impacts that climate change is all about. Climate change is all about the fact that we are in a changing condition of the climate, not just responding to current extreme events. So really helping communities to think about, think differently about responding to different scenarios of the future and thinking about what pathways of their development uh, or their employment might work under those future scenarios. But also recognizing that local and indigenous people have been dealing with highly uncertain climates for millennia and building on their local and traditional knowledge as a bedrock for how we respond. And then linked to that is the importance of flexible programming and learning. Um, adaptation is inherently a, an adaptive management approach. It's responding to new information and creating lots of opportunities that will be allow us to be more resilient in the future. So a great example, even in the UK, is the Thames Barrier, where it's designed not only when people think about the Thames Barrier, they tend to think about the quite amazing infrastructure sitting in the middle of the Thames, but it's actually all about creating lots of different adaptation opportunities, whether that be restoring the ecosystem surrounding that area. So it's 
all about creating a lot of different flexible opportunities to respond to different climate risks as they emerge, but also allowing local people to try different interventions and that, and that is associated with the climate funding that's provided, not being rigid and inflexible like it tends to be. Seven is around ensuring climate funding, but also the adaptation processes as transparent and accountable as possible. So as we mentioned, not all adaptation might not happen at the local level, but ensuring that local people know where adaptation decision making is meant to take place, that it's the governance of the adaptation process is open. We know who's meant to be taking decisions, where the money's meant to be flowing, which communities or which organizations are meant to be involved. So those adaptation process can be held accountable. We know what benefits are meant to uh, accrue. We know who's meant to be able to adapt to climate change after the projects or programs concluded, but also that we can hold those actors accountable as that process uh, takes place. And then finally, um, the eighth principle is about collaborative action and investment. Ideally, we would live in a world where adapt climate adaptation responding to climate risks is a very collaborative process across international down to local actors, maybe even households and individuals across civil, civic actors, government actors, private sector actors. And ideally, we want to support processes and planning that allows collaboration across all of these different stakeholders within society but also recognizing that there are various different sources of funding that can play different roles. So we have now funding uh, to respond to COVID, COVID green recovery funding. What role is that going to play? We have um, overseas development assistance that we uh, often commit as developed countries to give to developing countries for their sustainable development. We have humanitarian assistance to respond to humanitarian crises or other extreme events. And then we have climate finance thrown in the mix. So we need to think really carefully about how these different sources of funding interact with each other. And we also hope that these principles can contribute towards actually in the run up to COP26, informing what actually the role of climate finance is in interaction with all these other sources of funding. One of the sort of key things that seemed to come up again and again as you were explaining them was this emphasis on learning and particularly learning from other cultures and communities that have been doing different aspects of this adaptation practice um, for, for many years, like long before the international climate agenda. So I just wondered, do you have kind of any examples of where aspects of these principles are being implemented well, places that we can learn from evidence that these are actually sort of improving outcomes? Great, yeah, thanks, Ben. Just as a few examples of uh, where they're already being delivered in part. Uh, so an example in which IID is involved in is we are, have been involved over the last decade in supporting what's called the County Climate Change Funds in Kenya, which started off around 10 years ago with uh, small amounts of funding from the UK government and other donors gradually came on board to help develop uh, climate change funds that sit at the county level, so the sub-national level in Kenya. And actually, it was written into them to uh, mandate that 70% of the funding was to be decided at the lowest local government level, so the ward level in Kenya. So ward level, including community uh, participation, the inclusion of women and youth actors, were to be able to um, debate and decide on 70% of the funding that would be held within this county climate change fund. And over the last 10 years, these county climate change funds have been operational in several, several counties. They've uh, developed learning of what's worked, what hasn't integrated 
local traditional knowledge on climate into them, even climate science. Um, they've integrated learning and adaptive management processes, which we call monitoring and evaluation and learning, to become more mature funding mechanisms. Um, and they've actually been able to um, secure recently a significant loan from the World Bank, which will go to the central government in Kenya, which will allow for the scale out of these county climate change funds across the whole of Kenya. And accompanied to that, what's really um, fantastic is to observe, uh, I guess, the cost effectiveness of these climate change funds. So county, the county governments that initially piloted these mechanisms uh, pledged 2% of their own development budgets to these uh, local climate finance mechanisms. So indicating that when these mechanisms are designed inclusively with the support of national and subnational governments, they can also unlock resources that the uh, local authorities can provide themselves. I just want to bring us towards the end of this, this conversation now, thinking about the process by which we can get these principles sort of adopted and implemented. I mean, you mentioned at the start that actually these principles have already been sort of much discussed and mm. that um, a range of different actors have, have kind of signed up to them and that there appears to be some sense of the kind of adoption of these, which is fantastic news. But I wondered if you could tell us a bit about what you think it will require to move from sort of commitments to do this <laughs> to actually tangible changing development practices I guess on on the part of governments and and international organizations which are often quite slow to evolve in terms of how they actually do things and I, I also in, in a related sense have you had any challenges from those who sort of support the status quo or who have been involved in the status quo has, has there been any pushback in terms of of this i was thinking particularly from the point of view of the kind of political debates that we have in the uk about aid spending and the context of the fact that the overseas development aid is, is being cut all the time and quite significant changes to this is there any sense that governments might think in a certain way we have to have a much more sort of centralized command and control mm. <laughs> approach mm. to spending our development money and actually sort of devolving all of this to local communities on the ground and and reducing the amount of influence we have on how the money is spent might actually be a mm. pretty politically difficult thing to to move mm. to that's a great question Ben. Uh, i'll try and um, to cover all of those so i guess firstly we are seeing really positive momentum around engaging in this debate around, I guess, in uh, shifting the normative narrative on uh, recognizing the important role that local actors play in adaptation. And it's enshrined within the Paris Agreement and the Paris Agreement's global goal on adaptation that local actors, particularly vulnerable actors, play an incredibly important role in adaptation. So it's already recognized within the Paris Agreement. I guess, the tendency and our interest obviously is the interaction with climate finance because we see it's an important flow that holds power i guess um is that the ten there's tended to be a very much a concentration on the quantity of climate finance as a whole uh, we all know the uh, the 100 billion that was agreed in copenhagen and that's going to be an incredibly important topic of discussion at cop 26 in glasgow um, but I guess recently we're starting to see, uh, again, a resurgence of a focus on the quality. And within that quality comes the interaction with the importance of the local level. So 45 plus now organizations, including 
the UK government itself through the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Offices Office, uh, Irish Aid, the Irish government's development arm, um, um, but also several of the major climate funds, the Adaptation Fund, the World Bank's Climate Investment Funds, and the Global Environment Facility, and hopefully soon the Green Climate Fund, although not quite yet, um, have signed up or endorsed the principles. So we're seeing a lot of uh, support across uh, powerful climate finances to support this agenda. And I guess it aligns very much with the history of uh, good development. It's good development practice that we're putting forward here. It's not, it's not anything shiny and new. It's going back to the basics of what we know uh, is really important to deliver. Um, but I guess what you touch on is, is, is really important is what we frame in the, uh, the report on the principles is it's about shifting from business as usual to business unusual. And I guess I've mentioned disruption and transformation several times and uh, doing so naturally is going to be disruptive. And that will require, as I've alluded to several times, a shift in who holds the power. Um, and this is all caught up in other debates around decolonization of aid, even Black Lives Matters. And something that we've been thinking more about is, is even the principles themselves, are we reflect, is, are we adequately reflecting those, those paradigms within this? And I guess it's, yeah, it's all about shifting who holds the power. And even organizations like IIED, we have had to really think about carefully, we've even endorsed the principles and thought, well, what does this actually mean for us? And we're embarking on a process of thinking about how do we shift to business unusual and work with the partners we work with to give up more power to them, ensure that they are really um, leading the adaptation processes. But as you rightly say, um, this can all often get caught up in a lot of empty rhetoric. And that will be the proof is can we move past that? Because in the adaptation space, there's long been uh, rhetoric around participatory adaptation. And that is what these principles are really trying to seek to overcome is often we uh, hear phrases and references to participation or participatory adaptation. And often it isn't, it's presenting ready-made adaptation solutions and giving local actors at uh, the best, a very limited role in that adaptation process. We're currently undertaking some uh, climate finance work to understand how localized is some of this funding so can we start to disaggregate the roles of local actors and often it's really complex and often they're presented with with predetermined uh, criteria for what they can decide upon and also it's incredibly uh, dependent on domestic political uh, situations as you rightly mentioned there's a tendency in in many countries to um, state that they are support, supportive and even enshrine into law decentralization or devolution processes but when it actually comes to looking where the money flows and who has decision-making over those resources, it can tend to be only in words rather than in action. So that's why we've enshrined these principles in a learning journey to support adaptation stakeholders to come together to share how they are doing on this and actually share and be willing to seek critique on, on how they're going about shifting from this business as usual way of working to this business unusual. Marek, I gave you a horribly double-barreled question there at the end, and I, for which I apologise, but actually you you covered all of it in a very coherent way. So thank you very much. Um, I think we'll leave it there. The report, uh, Principles for Locally-Led Adaptation, A Call to Action, is available online, and there's a link in the show notes. Marek Soans, thanks so much for joining me today.
It's been a pleasure, Ben. Thank you very much. Well, Ben, those were two fascinating discussions. Um, I really enjoyed doing the interview with the High Commissioner and I learned a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought particularly um, hearing from uh, Her Excellency Tasneem about the effects of climate change on Bangladesh, but also how Bangladesh is really trying to play a kind of global leadership role on, on some of these issues. Really, really fascinating. Anna, I thought before we could go, maybe you could give us a bit of a sneak preview about some of the upcoming topics we'll be covering on the Climate Briefing. Sure, happy to. Um, yeah, a lot of interesting episodes lined up. Um, we will in the next few months be covering how climate change uh, action can be advanced within the G7 and the G20 this year. And we'll also be um, covering the outcomes of President Biden's leader summit on climate change. Uh, just transition will be the focus of another episode. Uh, and we're really hoping to kind of go beyond talking about concepts there and digging into what are the policy recommendations? How can the just transition be brought about in practice? So those are just two examples, but we have a whole, uh, well, not a whole series. We've obviously come pretty far into season two, but um, numerous really interesting episodes coming ahead of COP26. So yeah, looking forward to those discussions. Absolutely, it's gonna be great. And listeners, if you ever think that there are topics that you would like us to cover on the climate briefing, we're definitely always open to you sort of contacting us. The best way to do that probably is to send us an email. Um, you can just email me at bhorton at chathamhouse.org if you ever want to sort of pitch any particular topics and we'll see if we can cover them in the time that we have left. God, Ben, your inbox is going to be inundated. <laughs> <laughs> what have I opened myself up to? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're a listener-led show, okay? Okay, well... That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us and listening to this far, to the, to the sort of end of our ramble um, at the end of this episode. If you want to listen back to previous episodes of The Climate Briefing, then they're all available on whichever podcast app you're listening to this one on to make it easier for others to find us and to kind of grow our, our listener base. It would be amazing if you could leave us a review or subscribe or both on your podcast app. Uh, just really, really helps discoverability. And if you want to keep up with the work that Chatham House is doing on climate policy, then the best way to do that is to follow our energy, environment and resources program on Twitter at ch underscore environment. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Till then, stay safe and thanks very much for listening.